and welcome back to the edition podcast, the first show of 2023. I'm still Charlotte Henry, and this week, well, uh, I was going to say this week, I'm, you know, introduce my guest, but the truth is there is only one story to have talked about at the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023. I tried to avoid it as much as possible, but I can't, and we're going to have to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. And really, there's no one better to do so than my guest today, who is Chris Stoker-Walker. Hello, Chris. Happy New Year. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's the hangover, isn't it, from the new year to see Elon Musk continuing to bedevil our lives. Yes, well, he bedeviled your life particularly because you wrote and reported a whole host of stories on this for various publications at the end of last year. I did get concerned at one point that you were going to have a meltdown if you wrote the word Elon or Twitter again. I was going to send some kind of care package up to you in the farther ends of this country. But anyway, you made it through Christmas and New Year and you're here and Elon Musk is still here. So just remind us, because lots of things changed, where we were at the end of 2022. Yeah, so we we had basically three months by the end of 2022 of Elon Musk's Twitter and everything going a bit chaotic. Um, He had started to try and reshape the platform in his own image, by which he means um, publicly sort of acknowledging the power of free speech and allowing more users back on. He basically left the door open for Donald Trump to come back. He left the door open for Andrew Tate to come back who was kind of the first um, person... Can we not spend too much time talking about Andrew yeah, Tate? Yeah, I've just not, eaten no. and, like, it's a whole thing. Yeah. But it's, it is notable that, you know, Twitter was the first site platform to kind of roll back on that, which is troubling yeah, in, in some way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he let Kanye West, yay, back on, on the condition yep. of a kind of apology. Yeah. And the first thing Kanye West did was post something else anti-Semitic. And was yeah. there, but and then, he was then dutifully removed again, wasn't he? He was, yeah. So that that experiment failed. Um, Musk has been acting as personal tech support for some of the more unpleasant members of the far right, and we talked about. Well, explain Kanye what you Ye. mean by that. Well, just so he has been um, replying personally to complaints by by those who maybe have a lot in common with Kanye West or others um, about their gripes around Twitter while ignoring maybe some of the more systemic issues that I think the platform has that you know, potentially you know, more impartial observers might think of as more important than mm-hmm. whether or not you know people who have pretty abhorrent views are able to kind of get a direct line to Elon Musk. So we've had all of that happening. Um, there's also what looks to pretty much anybody who's looking at it to be a pretty um, virulent asset stripping going on, cutting costs. Um, Well, yeah, the key point is one of the first things he did was sack half the staff or give them an option to leave. Basically half the staff left one way or the other. Yeah, sacked half the staff, um, let go of four-fifths of the contractors, but then has gone further, decided that he wasn't going to pay bills, including office bills, so... Um, I believe that there is a, a dispute going on with uh, one of Twitter's office owners in San Francisco about the fact that they haven't paid their bills. Um, he tried to drive down the cost of Twitter's data centers, which was costing the company $3 million a day, and Musk thought that was too much. So he has um, 
kind of removed a lot of the redundancy that's involved there ironically then cutting off um i think the entirety of australia and new zealand for around about half a day Lucky they weren't australia able to and access twitter yeah i know if, if only we could all do that then we <laughs> would have better lives um so maybe that's a taste of the the post musk twitter um that we see so he's essentially you know engaging in a lot of cost cutting because he needs to make this a going concern because he's funded this through essentially collateral against tesla and yeah we, we can't really talk about twitter without talking about tesla and, no you know, that's absolutely price. right because he has taken some personal hits to his wealth hasn't he he has. He's become hugely, hugely poorer. And I mean, yeah, he still owns far more than probably all okay. of us that are listening put together. Yeah, he, he's 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 good for the money still. Um, but he, you know, the share price of Tesla has dropped like seventy five percent over the course of twenty twenty two. He the has point, some of the the point with the Tesla point. I'm really pleased you brought this up because the point about Tesla is not you know, you and I joking, whether Elon Musk is going to not be able to pay his bills one month. Obviously, that's not the issue. What the issue is, is whether Tesla investors get a bit fed up with this and go, would you please concentrate on Tesla instead of mucking around on Twitter all day? And we've already seen some evidence of this, haven't we? Because towards the end of the year, uh, Elon Musk did a poll asking whether he should stand down as Twitter CEO, because when he bought it, he immediately became the CEO because he sat the CEO. Um, and the answer to the poll, whether you believe he was doing this was yes or no, and was yes. And, you know, he said he would stick to the poll and did tweet further that he was, when he'd found a suitable replacement, going to stick stand down as CEO. Now, there's a lot of wiggle room in that because he can just keep saying, I've not found a suitable person. But it is yeah. interesting. I think there is going to be increasing pressure on him to let other people get on with the day-to-day management of Twitter so he can keep launching rockets into space and making Teslas, which are the things that make him money, particularly the cars. I yeah. don't know if SpaceX makes any money yeah. for him. I mean, it gets a decent amount of funding from, from NASA. So sure. it, it gets the company gets funding, but he doesn't necessarily become hugely rich from it. But yeah. I think that is what is interesting, right? You're seeing a man who has spread himself too thinly and... You know, he was already with Tesla, with SpaceX, with some of his other kind of interests and companies and just frankly being Elon Musk and trying to be on the front page of every news website every single day of the year by doing something weird. Um, was already spreading himself pretty thin and having the plates kind of wobble a little bit. When you add in Twitter to that, suddenly all the plates are coming down and it is looking pretty bad because, you know, he... <laughs> It's not as if individually each of these companies are small fry, right? No. Like you know, SpaceX is putting rockets into space with NASA and people. Tesla is essentially spearheading you know, the electric vehicle revolution. And for all that, we might not like Elon Musk personally doing a decent job of it. Um, Twitter yeah, is, right. you know, the public square and the place that, you know, power brokers, uh, people and... who matter, converse. Yes, you're. I mean, you're obviously right about that. And also... It actually needs someone to make it make money. It does not make money. Yeah. It, if it, you're going to be the CEO, it's your job to make it make money at this point. Yeah. And and moreover, he, he bought the company at an overinflated price. So he he, you know, he 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 bought a company that was already not doing brilliantly. I think by the end of Parag Agrawal's um, reign as CEO, who's the person who you know, Musk turfed out when he took over. I think they were almost to the point of breaking even for like the last quarter or so, I think. But it's 
it's been so long that I can't actually remember whether that's definitely true or not, but it seems to be in the dim recesses of my mind. Um, <laughs> that was 25 <laughs> stories earlier. Yeah, exactly. And that was only Tuesday. Um, and But the thing is that, you know, this is, um, this is a company that was not run well before. And it's a company that Elon Musk then... Which was his criticism. Made, That's why he bought it. Yeah. But then he made even more of an uphill climb for himself by overpaying for the company and therefore, you know, compounding bad management on top of the fact that, you know, not only do you have to try and climb this mountain, which was a badly run company in order to get it on an even keel, but then you're also making the mountain even higher by saying, I'll overpay by a third for the share price of what was actually trading at the time. So it's it's really weird. I don't I still don't know why he did it. I think he just thinks that doesn't matter to him, but it, it seems to have come back and bitten him quite badly. And also it's a power play. I, I think why it matters is because it's a power play. As you described it, it's the public square. It is a platform that, as you, again, you put this absolutely bang on, power brokers, journalists who he pretends he doesn't care about but clearly does. You know, much of the elite conversation, whether we like it or not, and there are good reasons why we shouldn't like it, it does happen on Twitter. Uh, the weird thing mm. about all this, right, is a large part of Elon Musk's assessment is actually kind of right, isn't it? Like, Twitter was not a very well-run company. company. It was yeah. not making money. It needed to sort things out. Twitter, you know, we one might argue that actually Twitter was a bit of a weird lefty bias, you know, liberal bias. I mean, you can sort of dictate who you who you follow and what comes into your feed, but I can see how you could easily make that argument. And you can I can imagine the type of people who are working at Twitter and their perhaps political persuasion and what they consider legitimate or, you know, okay or not. I think we can all kind of get that but to come in blazing as the ceo and do it in this ragtag way just is never going to solve any of those problems uh, and we haven't e i mean we don't need to reflect go back on the kind of twitter blue debacle of when it was gonna what it was gonna cost you know all this nonsense with um verification i've noticed in my feed now there are two types of verification aren't there i've seen yeah. some people now have an orangey tick and some people have mm. the traditional blue tick and some people have a square profile picture and some people have a circular one. And I, there was there was a point at which, and you know, we maybe don't want to dwell on this because it is one of the, the many kind of ridiculous examples of what's gone wrong over the last few months. But there was a point at which Twitter Blue, which has been on again, off again, on again, off again. Which is, that's the paid for a, verification service we should remind yeah, people. paid for verification service, which was originally going to be, I think, what, $20 a month, and then it became $8 a month because yeah. he negotiated against himself with Stephen King, which was the sci-fi <laughs> author Stephen King, which was yet another weird <laughs> kind of example of that's, like... That's just an amazing life. sentence you've said. Yeah, it's just you just think, well, how how weird? Uh, what kind of other left turn can this whole story take? And then you get Stephen King coming in. But you, when Twitter Blue, after having been kind of pushed back several times, actually rolled out as a subscription service, it was interesting because the first kind of day that it did it, I looked for instance for the Guardian's profiles, and I think you know there were like four different iterations of. Um, coloured badge and profile picture shape that were in there. Some of them were official accounts. Ironically, like the main one, I think, was not an official account and wasn't demarcated as such by Twitter, which kind of just shows you how 
haphazardly and slapdash this has been done and it's because he routed the company of all the people who had the institutional knowledge and simply of actually just people to do this stuff like there's people who have to switch on these things and if there aren't enough of them it doesn't get done properly yeah well there was that picture wasn't there where he was with, did a kind of classic whiteboard engineer picture with him and a bunch of oh god yeah I remember that from the, as you say, the deep recesses of our memories. And it was all like just a bunch of guys with their thumbs. I mean, but mm. and they all looked pretty young. And you're right. Like the institutional knowledge is gone. Now, I don't want you to reveal. I mean, you can reveal your sources, but you're not going to. But when you're talking to people in Twitter, how are the remaining staff feeling? Not great. And I'll, I'll, I'll be completely honest. There are increasingly few people still within twitter that i talk to simply because of either they've been let go or they've decided that enough is enough for them or just burn out and attrition and they go you know what i had enough of this so um there are increasingly few of the people that are still there you're not great because they've been running to stand still and actually falling back for three months now and they're doing so under a kind of very capricious boss i mean the perfect example of like how weird and demanding elon musk is that there was one point um i think back in november when he sent out an all staff email saying i expect everybody worldwide to be in the office in san francisco the following morning um regardless of where you were in the world so you're expecting yeah at like 8 p.m at night I, w- I was cooking a meal um with my girlfriend uh, oh, I think it was a Friday night, um, and I got a, a tip off from um, a then current Twitter employee um, saying that he had sent out this email saying that he expected everybody on, I think it was the eighth floor of the San Francisco office, and he would be there until midday on Saturday. And this was, I can't remember if it was 5, 6, 7, 8 p.m. on Friday night UK, UK time. time. And I, I, yeah, and I did check that it was possible for employees to do that there, there was a flight out of Heathrow um that left at, I think 10 p.m that would have got you there in time but like you know nobody is going to do that why why would you do that because halfway across the Atlantic you would say actually it doesn't matter in the end it's total insanity and again that feels to me like something just not thought through he probably what he probably meant correct me if you think I'm barking up mm. the wrong tree here I can imagine he thought Okay, people in San Francisco, he probably thought he was emailing just people in San Francisco or perhaps the wider California, US area. They could get there, not a a huge issue. They should come in because I'm Elon Musk and I say so. And without thinking through the implications for people in the rest of the world, do you think I'm being too generous? I think that he knew that it was global. I think that he probably maybe... Yeah, he has a private jet, right? Like, and, and you know, lest we forget, that was another weird wrinkle. Yeah, no, I can't. Oh, I do of... actually want to talk about the journalist that got banned. Yes. So he thought, I've got a private jet. I can get anywhere I want by whatever time yeah. I want. So should everyone else. Yeah, exactly. I think that probably that's um, a, let's a talk... example of his detachment. Yeah, let's talk about free speech champion Elon Musk banning a bunch of journalists from Twitter. I, I wrote a quick story about this. I know you you did some stuff on this as well, didn't you? Because it was a completely balmy incident. Um, yeah. So, go on, lay it out for us. Jack Sweeney, 20-year-old, um, University of Central Florida student, um, had used what is perfectly publicly accessible 
uh, information, uh, ADSB information, which is basically a, a transponder at the front of a plane, happens on every single plane uh, that flies in the US. He gathered that data and put it into a bot on Twitter that tells you when Elon Musk's jet lands and where it does, um, and did that with lots of other celebrities, by the way. Um, it is publicly accessible information. Yeah, I've seen Elon loads Musk. of these. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're everywhere and they're fine. And you can you can literally access this information with like. Two uh, and also, people on... have used them to kind of try and shame celebrities into not using uh, private planes for really pathetic twelve-minute flights and stuff. Yeah, Taylor Swift key amongst them was one of right. the the recent. Yes, examples. I remember that one. Um, yeah, yeah, and so um, yeah, Jack Sweeney had done this for a while. He ran the account Elon Jet. Elon Musk had previously tried to persuade him to not run the account by offering him $5,000. Um, Sweeney declined. Elon Musk, I think literally like one day said, I, I protect freedom of speech so much that I will not ban Elon Jet from Twitter. And then like basically the next day banned Elon Jet from Twitter. And we find out it's because he believes that it was um, real time assassination coordinates that were being shared. Because That was his phrase, wasn't it? This is, it was his phrase. And this is where it gets really, really weird. Because, um, a car driving his the mother of his youngest child, Grimes, was stopped at a petrol station in the US. Um, and he believed that that was because someone had been tracking his plane. Turns out it wasn't. Journalists started to uncover that. And so when they started to uncover that, Elon Musk started banning them because A, they were sharing the quote-unquote real-time assassination coordinates, also known as publicly accessible information about a jet that was not connected to the instance that Musk claimed it was. And also because um, in the case of Taylor Lorenz, uh, who was probably one Washington of the most high Post bannings. Yeah, Washington Post tech reporter, previously at the New York Times, previously at the Daily Beast and others. Uh, I think because she had the temerity to ask Elon Musk for comment, that was seemed to be why that had happened. So it, it just went really weird. Um, and was quite a troubling thing. That was kind of, I think, when we got through the looking glass a little bit yeah. and realised actually there was quite a danger here. I, I entirely agree. I had sort of poo-pooed a lot of the drama and concerns about Elon Musk before this incident. I had, you know, done a think of like, you know, people stop pretending you're going to quit Twitter. You're not. Don't pretend anything dramatic is going to change. It's not. And like, even when it was changing, I was like, oh, it's not really changing for users like it's all a bit chaotic at Twitter HQ, but mm. most of your user experience is the same. And you know, silly naive me, frankly. And you know, when we started seeing him pull the plug on journalists, you suddenly realised, quite as you put it, through the looking glass we were. Because whether you think journalists should spend less time on Twitter or not, and we should spend a lot less time on Twitter, mm. um, it is a key way of communicating stories and getting information and. Frankly, if you think if you've come bought a company, a communications and media company, on the basis of it being the public square and increasing free speech, the idea that you should ban journalists because they've written a story that upsets you a bit is just completely ridiculous. Like we don't really need to outline how hypocritical and nonsensical that is. Yeah, it, but it's interesting. It's interesting because to me, it it sounds very odd but the whole thing put into perspective for me almost the entirety of the last 10 or more years 
of kind of the overreach of big tech and the way that actually like you know we had long lambasted big tech right you know Cambridge Analytica all of this stuff was seen as really problematic and Mark Zuckerberg is the villain everybody loves to hate except that actually when you put it into context compared to what Elon Musk did it's it's actually quite notable how prior tech kind of titans have at least pretended to adhere to social norms like they they we always said that Mark Zuckerberg was evil and you know there is an argument that he is in many many ways but what's fascinating to me is at least he tried to live up to the the reputation of what society expects from someone that has such power it, it was a very interesting thing that that um musk did because it kind of echoed a lot of the ways to me at least that you know donald trump kind of went away with decorum and went away with like what was considered reputationally standard for someone in his position and and then kind of you know, change things forever where people think actually no i don't have to adhere to these rules and so you know, elon musk banning journalists was an example of that sort of thing where you wouldn't countenance anybody else doing it except for elon musk yeah and we should say those journalists are back uh, it, it, it all got sort reversed of. Sort. sort of not all of them are a lot of them are but then there are some that i think have been required to delete the tweets in question uh. and have still refused to so they they're being invited back should they delete the tweets but they feel in principle that they shouldn't i think there's a couple of them that are still in that boat which is kind of further evidence of his yeah i mean to be honest i I'm, i was trying to restrain my language but actually it's an abuse of power plain and simple yeah. isn't it I was trying to be restrained, but there's nothing else really to put it as. And it is deeply worrying. I don't really want to dive into the jump to Mastodon and all of that stuff. I want to instead ask you, I mean, this is a bit of a cruel question for me to ask you because who the <laughs> hell knows. But what what do you think is going to happen next? I'll give you a three-month period. I won't say when we're talking this time next year, but it, you know, when he's been owning it for six months, say, what do you think Twitter will look like? Who the hell knows? No, I, I mean, um, there, you, there Chris, are... you. This is why you're no, here. You I mean, know. I don't think Elon Musk does, and that's kind of the thing to me. I think that you know, Elon Musk himself yeah. doesn't necessarily know what he's doing tomorrow, and that's what makes you know, predictions quite so concerning. But I think, yeah, I think that we will probably. <sighs> Well, look, I think it has to change in some way. We know that Elon Musk is is already trying to redraw the platform away from an advertising-led one to a subscription-based one. So far, he's failed in doing that. Um, We know that he's keen to try and get videos involved, and you can get longer videos now on Twitter. I think that we'll start to see that being pushed more and more. One of the things that I think we won't see is... um, the kind of great arrival of creators that musk is banking on you know he he said in the last month or so that he wants it to be a place that creators come and base themselves in but order by, to make it a place to visit so by creators you mean the type of people that we associate more perhaps with instagram YouTube, TikTok, TikTok. instagram yeah those sorts of people, professional creators who are, who are, you know, the sort of 21st century equivalent of TV hosts. They they create content that we as a sort of society consume um, and they, they get paid to do that. Um, I don't think that will happen in large part because Elon Musk underestimates what's involved in having to actually get those people comfortable 
to do that and the amount that you'd have to pay them and the fact that Twitter has previously tried this with Vine, its short form video platform and failed, but also because, and you know, this is where I can kind of lay claim to a little bit of expertise. I have covered the creator space for five now, six or more years. And, um, the one thing that creators hate is uncertainty. They, they really dislike the idea that those platforms that they build their living on could, at a whim, change their rules. And they've previously been really concerned about platforms that are actually quite traditional, staid and slow, like YouTube changing their rules. So heaven forbids what they think Elon Musk is going to do, because he changes the rules day in, day out. Yeah, we've seen kind of creator freakouts when the YouTube algorithm and things have changed. And so the kind of being at the whim of one's erratic CEO is really not going to appeal to creators. I also think it vastly misunderstands what happens on Twitter. Like yeah. the creator, that kind of creator type economy is not, and creator type content is just not why I associate with Twitter at all. And it's never really been that. I know Vine went wrong a long time before Elon Musk, but like it's just never been that, has it? It's about conversations. It's frankly people plugging their work and whatever else. It's just never been that place where you're going to get people do their latest, post their latest sketch video or, you know, latest. You know, people use Twitter to direct people to their YouTube channel where they've done the longer form video. I, I just can't yeah. imagine it happening on Twitter. No, and, it, and it's notable in terms of that directing stuff. He's already salted the ground with creators because one of the other mad moments that we didn't even get to cover, and I completely forgot about until now, is that <laughs> as part of that Elon Jet thing, he banned links to any outside platform, essentially. Like a large oh, yeah, that was mental platform. for a bit, wasn't it? Because he was annoyed yeah. about people going, directing people to their new Mastodon account and stuff. Yeah, that was mad. Yes. I'd forgotten about that. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> you see... Chris, this is why you're such a pro, because you've now directed us to the next bit of the conversation by talking about creators. Hey. Look at this guy. So go on. You've written. You, so, I mean, we could go on talk about Elon Musk all day, but frankly, I can't stomach it. It's the first week back after no. Christmas. I think we've covered most of it. When the next mad thing happens, I'll have you back on the show. But yeah. we've mentioned you've mentioned the creator space, and that's a really important space. It's going to be really interesting to watch what happens there in 2023. Uh, and one of your books, you've written a book on YouTube, which is excellent. And you've also written an excellent book on TikTok called TikTok Boom. Um, and I think you got there before the film, didn't you? Um, I did. <laughs> and so where do you see the creator space? Now, TikTok is exactly the type of place I associate with creators far more than Twitter ever will be. So where where do you see that going in 2023? Yeah, it's interesting. TikTok's at a really fascinating moment because it, it it's... And and one of the things is that this has happened at a time when Twitter has dominated and just sucked up all the oxygen. So people mm. have kind of been ignoring this, myself included. And you know, I, I kind of feel bad about it because TikTok is meant to be my thing, and I haven't really devoted much attention to it. But TikTok is really facing potentially the most existential threat that it's had. And you know, I say that in the knowledge that Donald Trump in twenty twenty mounted a campaign to literally try and ban it from the entire United States. Um, there is this kind of growing um, movement of politicians on both sides 
of the political spectrum in the United States saying that actually they're a little bit concerned about this. So multiple states have banned the use of TikTok on federal devices. Um, Sorry, this is because, and we should be really clear about why we're talking about this, the Mm. concern comes from the fact that ByteDance, which is the parent company of TikTok, is a huge Chinese company and therefore by definition must have links with the Chinese government and the Chinese authorities. It claims sort of independence, but there is absolutely no way a company of that size operating out of China does not have ties to the to the Chinese authorities. And the Americans have got very freaked out about it. Um, as I, I think the European and the EU are going to start mm. worrying about it. I wonder if it will filter through to here, but there's enough stuff to be getting on with here, I think. But the <laughs> EU are definitely looking at this. The Americans, as you say, are really looking at this. Mm. Uh, and it is a big issue for TikTok. It is. It's a huge one. And you know, it, I, I keep going back to this example. The, the, the example of how huge it is for TikTok is the fact that they willingly admit to being based in a tax haven in the Cayman Islands. Because it's better than the preferably links to China. To, yeah, because they, they, they say, we're not a Chinese company, we're based in the Cayman Islands. And, and when you actually think about that, 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 <laughs> that claim in a whole, it's kind of bizarre. And... So look, yes, there are several things kind of really quickly to unpack there. Number one is yes, you know, ByteDance is a company headquartered in Beijing, despite what you know, the company says. Normally, it's headquartered in Cayman Islands, but if if the number of people that work for ByteDance actually went to the Cayman Islands, they would overwhelm the sewerage system and things like that. Um, um, and did I characterise <laughs> its relationship with the Chinese state correctly? You you did on paper, um, and and this is kind of the interesting thing. Um, I'm not the world's best journalist. I'm not the world's worst journalist. Lots of people have tried to kind of find that smoking gun of evidence of the Chinese state asking TikTok to do something and TikTok through ByteDance acceding to it. There definitely are, you know, we, we know that there are fully paid up members of the Chinese Communist Party working for ByteDance in Beijing. Um, there are in every single company in China. Um, and... <sighs> There is this issue where we should definitely very much be concerned about it because you have a tussle between superpowers and dominance over the digital sphere is something that's really, really important and something that we haven't um, ignored over the last few years with Huawei and others as well. Where it becomes trickier is there still isn't any evidence of this and we have tried very hard to find it um, of kind of active interference. Okay, active interference is one thing. But there's also the kind of, how can I put this, the quiet hand of a state, Mm. particularly in a place like China. And Mm. we just know that no company the size of ByteDance could operate without at least playing nice with the authorities, right? Yeah, and and there are prior precedents for this. So ByteDance as a company... um, they installed within Douyin, which is the Chinese version of the app that is available only in mainland China, um, a new tab after a little bit of controversy where they were seen to be a bit too riotous with their other apps. They they installed an app on Douyin that was called the, um, it was basically a propaganda tab where you saw uh, positive energy, it was called, um, <laughs> the translation. And, um, and this was around so, the kind of COVID protests and things like that as, the Chinese state was trying this to dampen was, those down. This was actually a bit before that. This was a okay. separate thing where there were there were kind of 
it, it's a very long story. It ties back to a, an app that was a bit like Reddit that ByteDance developed, okay. which had a, a kind of following that moved offline, and therefore the Chinese state were very worried about the fact that right. they'd moved online organizing to offline. And so they, they kind of brought them back in and said, you can't do that. Um, the you know, ByteDance have claimed previously to try and install firewalls. There was a really interesting example of um, how they had struggled to do that, which was uncovered um by uh the new york times by forbes and by buzzfeed news um where essentially a chinese-based employee of ByteDance had accessed information about western journalists uh and tried to track their movements using um, the app which is a huge huge issue and huge, yep. equ yeah equally enormous as Elon Musk kind of peeling off the mask and saying, I don't actually... You could argue actually is bigger. Bigger, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, yeah, because it, it has this huge geopolitical ramification. Mm. And so, yeah, and what's fascinating to me is, and, you know, journalists have to be sceptics, and I am mm -hmm. generally often sceptical about this. What's fascinating to me is What that, he means is, Chris means is he's an absolute grump. Yeah, exactly. I like to call <laughs> myself a tech sceptic, tech religionist, which is useful because they're all terrible people. But what's fascinating to me is that ByteDance and TikTok over the course of their existence in the West have tried very, very hard, not just publicly, but also privately, to avoid the pitfalls that predecessor apps have had where they've walked into a rake. It's like the Sideshow Bob thing, where there are so many issues that you can have with um, social media platforms. And they've very carefully studied what issues Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, mm -hmm. others have had in the past and tried to avoid it. And then there is this complete self-generated fumble by them that really undoes all of that work that they've had to go look we are cleaner than clean we know that you have concerns about this link to china we know that this is a real issue that many people have so let us try and prove to you how virtuous and pure we are and actually they failed because of some people now the big question and it's one that's still unanswered is was this a couple of rogue employees who overstepped their mark who didn't understand the kind of issues for those we don't have video on this podcast charlotte just pulled a face uh i didn't mean to maybe that's not the case oh i didn't um, mean to oh goodness no it's fine maybe it's, my it, natural skepticism is coming through yeah no but rightly there is a there is a you know and we should be skeptical of that because we don't know and and that's kind of the thing that we still have to figure out and i think mm. bike dance have pretty serious questions to answer about why this happened how it happened and how you stop this happening again so, because of those links because of all of this, do you actually think, mm. I mean, I find it hard to imagine the US actually banning Twitter from app stores. But I do think it's possible they'll really crack down and try and get people headquartered in the US and so on and so forth. And I can see the EU taking some quite serious action as well. Do you think that's yeah. plausible? Yeah, I do. And and you know, when I was writing the book, it was right at the end of Donald Trump's presidency. Joe Biden had just been elected, but hadn't necessarily taken, taken office. office or was very much in his early first couple of months. I think I closed out the book in like February or, or oh. March 2021. So it was literally as Biden stepped into the White House. And the, the thing that I said at that point is yeah, the, the, the shadow of potentially disappearing or having major issues 
is potentially greater for TikTok now than it was under Trump. Because with Trump, you knew it was bonkers. You knew that it wouldn't stand yeah. up to scrutiny. Biden's doing this properly now. And, mm. and the US politicians are realizing that they have to do this properly. And so there is, you're right, this kind of, maybe not it disappears tomorrow, but maybe it kind of gets nobbled and Americanized in a way that means that it, it loses a lot of what's unique about it. Bite dance loses a lot of the impact that it had. And that's a real concern, I think, for them. Yeah, I, I had that as you were laying out the timeline. I actually thought TikTok would probably invite does would probably rather Donald Trump was in charge with yeah. where his erratic kind of behavior doesn't actually get stuff done. Whereas yeah. Joe Biden and, you know, this, the leadership in the Senate and whatever else can be a lot more methodical and gets. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see how this plays out. Chris, thank you so much for joining me to kick off the year on the edition podcast. Where can people keep up with all your great work? You can find me uh, at Twitter for as long as it exists, which is at Stokel, S-T-O-K-E-L. I'm not on it. I am one of the platforms I'm on Mastodon, but I'll not link that at the minute because that's illegal on Twitter or at least. <laughs> well, I might be able to put it in my subset. But yeah, at Stokel <laughs> on Twitter. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. You can also follow at The Edition News. Uh, if you're listening to this show via the Substack newsletter, well, you know where to find that. And I hope you are subscribed. If you're just listening to the podcast because you found it in a podcast app, Thank you. And anyone else can find the show in wherever they listen to their podcasts. But also head over to theedition.substack.com. That's A-double-D. And subscribe. There's lots of exciting stuff coming to the newsletter this year. Chris, thank you once again for joining me. And I'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.